0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Thursday, May 20th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Why the sun is about to get quite temperamental, and how that could spell danger for NASA's upcoming lunar mission. In other sun news, the case for turning airports into giant solar farms And a website that will help make your Twitter timeline a bit more pleasant, if you're okay with taking a rather extreme route. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. NASA is supposed to go back to the moon in 2024 as part of its Artemis program, but recently it's seemed like they may need to push that deadline back a few years. And while it's never good to rush something as serious as catapulting human beings into space, the MIT Technology Review points out there's one reason it might be better if they stuck to the original timeline. And it's the sun's fault. According to a new study published today in the journal Solar Physics, we're going to be seeing some extreme space weather roughly around 2026 through 2029, exactly when NASA might go to the moon if the current 2024 timeline is pushed back. Now, what do they mean by extreme space weather? Mostly solar storms. Quoting the MIT Tech Review, The surface of the sun erupts with gas and plasma, ejecting charged particles, protons, electrons, and heavy ions, into the rest of the solar system at millions of miles per hour. These particles can strike Earth and the moon in just a matter of minutes. Earth's magnetic field protects us from them, but the particles can still fry electronics and power grids on the surface and damage critical satellites that manage GPS and telecommunications services. Space weather could be extremely dangerous for any astronauts flying to the moon or trying to live and work on a lunar outpost at the surface. Life support systems and power could shut down, and solar activity could produce life-threatening levels of radiation. Between Apollo 16 and 17, says Matthew Owens, lead author of the study and a space physicist at the University of Reading, there was a huge space weather event that would have likely been fatal if astronauts had been on the moon at the time. End quote. This is something that I learned from that Apple TV Plus show For All Mankind, which showed a solar storm occurred that disrupted radio communication on Earth and created a dire situation for the astronauts on the lunar base. But how do we know that this is going to be worse in the latter half of the decade as opposed to in 2024? because that's when the sun will be ending its 11-year cycle, cycle 25, which began at the end of 2019. The cycle is when the sun's magnetic field flips, the north and south poles are swapped, and the solar activity amps up and mellows out. And while we've known for a while that space weather roughly corresponds to the solar cycle, we haven't been certain if the most extreme space weather events follow any sort of pattern. But after running thousands of simulations based on 150 years of solar activity records, the scientists whose research was published today in Solar Physics found that, quoting the tech review again, extreme space weather follows the same general pattern as moderate weather. Activity is higher during a solar maximum than a minimum, and severe events are more likely during strong solar cycles than weaker ones. And there was also one very interesting nugget unique to extreme events. They tend to occur slightly later in odd Numbered solar cycles than even ones. End quote. Being an odd numbered cycle now, that means while the solar maximum will happen around 2023 to 2029, the most extreme weather will probably be pushed to later in that window. And depending on who you ask, this cycle is set to be the strongest we've seen since records began in 1755. That's according to Robert Lehman and his team from the University of Maryland. They based their estimate on a type of solar event they call the terminator, which signals the end of a cycle. However, others, using the traditional method of counting sunspots which grow and fade as the sun's cycle waxes and wanes, predicted that this cycle 25 would be more mild. As the researchers point out in their new paper, there remains a lot of debate and unknowns in this field. Fortunately, however, there are a number of spacecraft monitoring the sun right now, including NASA's Parker Solar Probe and the European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter. And that's really good, because apart from the danger for astronauts where the next trip on the moon to coincide with some type of extreme space weather... As stated before, the fallout on Earth could also be fairly destructive, and even with various prediction models and monitoring, our current systems would only give us a few hours to a few days to prepare. National Geographic elaborates on the potentialities, quote, A strong solar cycle might spell trouble for Earth. Sunspots can unleash massive explosions called solar flares, and those flares sometimes sling volleys of radiation and charged particles into space called coronal mass ejections, or CMEs. If a sufficiently strong CME collides with Earth, it could cause a damaging geomagnetic storm. Perhaps the best known of these storms occurred in 1859, during Solar Cycle 10. Known as the Carrington event, it disrupted telegraphs and shocked operators at the controls, and it lit the skies with auroras that were visible as far south as the Caribbean. Today, a storm of this magnitude would be devastating. It could crash power grids, knock out satellites, endanger astronauts in orbit, change planned flight routes, and render Earth's upper atmosphere impenetrable to ground-based communication systems. "...weaker eruptions are also dangerous. On March 12, 1989, the entire province of Quebec lost power when a CME, a fraction the strength of the Carrington event, smashed into Earth and fried the power grid, trapping people in elevators and tunnels. In orbit, multiple satellites temporarily went dark or had trouble maintaining altitude, and sensors tripped aboard the space shuttle Discovery, which had launched earlier that day." End quote. Fortunately, governments, space agencies, and even power companies are well aware of these dangers and have been putting more and more resources towards studying them and preparing backup plans. But as for the moon... Dan Baker, a space physics researcher from the University of Colorado Boulder, emphasizes that while this new study, which he was not involved in, seems to hold up, he doesn't think it should be a reason to avoid lunar missions between 2026 and 2029. It should be considered and folded in the mission plan, he says, but quote, with an active and effective operational space weather alert and warning system, I believe the threats can be made manageable, end quote. So we'll see what NASA thinks. Maybe they'll end up hitting their 2024 goal after all, and they won't need to worry about even more extreme space weather in the subsequent years. But hey, one cool thing that will happen during this period of temperamentality from the sun, on April 8th, 2024, as the sun is approaching its maximum peak of the cycle, we'll be able to see a total solar eclipse from Texas to Maine here in North America. And get your solar eclipse glasses ready because this one is supposed to be even better than the eclipse back in 2017. Back then, the sun was in a waning phase towards the end of its cycle. In 2024, as the sun approaches its maximum peak, its corona will put on a real show when the moon passes in front of it. Definitely something that is not to be missed. So I grew up in the town in Texas that houses the majority of the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, which means that there were always planes flying low overhead. So some businesses took advantage of that, most notably my high school. The school had a contract with Dr. Pepper, which meant not only that we were only allowed to sell Dr. Pepper products at school events, but also that the company paid the school a certain sum of money to plaster a giant Dr. Pepper ad on the roof of the school, so every plane landing and taking off at DFW Airport would get treated to a big ol' ad for the 23 flavor soda. I never actually went up on the roof to check and kind of thought it was an urban legend, but it's actually cited in the book Fast Food Nation, so I guess it was true at some point at least. Now, while advertising on top of big buildings near airports, or even the airport buildings themselves, seems kind of like a no-brainer, this week Wired asked a much better question. Why don't we install solar panels on the tops of airport buildings and turn each one of them into giant solar farms? Researchers in Australia recently calculated that by installing solar panels in all the usable areas on the 21 airports in their country, they would produce enough energy to power 136,000 homes. It would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 152 kilotons a year. As Wired notes, that's the equivalent of taking 71,000 passenger cars off the road. Chain Sun, author of the new study, notes that because of the flat top of commercial buildings versus residential ones, not to mention the sheer square footage of airport roofs, installing solar panels would not only make the airports self-sufficient, but some would have enough excess electricity to power the surrounding area. So with all of that taken into account, why haven't we done this yet? Well, airports have very strict rules, and for good reason. They can install things that would produce glare and impair the vision of pilots or air traffic controllers, and the Federal Aviation Administration here in the U.S. also needs proof that the panels wouldn't interfere with radar communications. And then, of course, it comes down to the cost. Retrofitting panels onto existing buildings is expensive, but there's an argument to be made for designing and integrating solar panels into new or expanding terminals, Scott Morrissey, Senior VP of Sustainability at Denver International Airport, tells Wired. Because it's so much more expensive to install solar panels on older buildings, a cheaper option might be to put them on the ground, which would work in places like Denver or Dallas that have tons of square footage, but not so well in somewhere like LaGuardia or LAX. There's also the big drawback of solar energy, periods of time when there's no sunshine. The key in the future will be to store the solar energy in batteries, which can be used as a backup instead of generators, but such batteries still cost a ton of money. Despite the myriad challenges, solar panels do already exist at a number of airports. San Francisco International has 8 square miles of solar panels and they're attempting to build more. And the nearby tiny one-airline Humboldt County Airport is already at work on implementing a microgrid, a self-sufficient solar system that could even send excess energy to the main power grid. And over in Denver, they're putting the finishing touches on 120 acres worth of solar panels, some on roofs, some on the ground, which will be able to power 25-30% to of the airport's annual energy. So slowly but surely, it is happening. And especially at some of these huge, non-urban airports, it could make a big difference. Like Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, whose 17,200 acres makes it larger than the island of Manhattan, and which receives on average more than 230 days of sun a year. If outfitted with enough solar panels, it could probably become self-sufficient and then some. Maybe in the future, my old high school won't have to shill for soda corporations in order to make a buck, but will instead save money by being powered by excess solar energy from the airport. Ending today with just a handy website that I came across. It's called Megablock, and it's a super-powered plug-in for blocking people on Twitter. But it doesn't block just one person. Twitter's native app can do that. Oh, no, no. Megablock will block the tweet in question, the person who tweeted it, and every single person who liked the tweet. There's a reason their tagline is nuke tweets in one click. This really is the nuclear option. Now, I haven't found a need for it just yet, perhaps in part because I've been such a power user of the mute feature over the years that my timeline is relatively peaceful, but I can definitely imagine situations in which you might like to use it. You know, like, there's something to be said for staying aware of opinions which are different from your own. And yes, there could be the fear of accidentally blocking someone you know or like, but some things online can get so nasty, and there's just no reason to keep those kinds of bad vibes in your life. You know, I sometimes like to think of our social media accounts as like our homes. You know, like, I don't think twice about muting or deleting negative comments on my public accounts because that's like if someone spray painted a slur on my front door. I'm not going to keep it there because cleaning it would be censorship. It's my house. I don't want to look at that harassment. And likewise, if there's a conversation that somehow makes it to my feed that is something I just really don't want to see, I might use Megablock to really get rid of any traces of it. It's an extreme option, for sure, but with how exhausting social media can be, I think it's okay to have tools that can make our own personal experiences a little bit more pleasant. So we may soon be getting more answers about UFOs. Back in December, Senator Marco Rubio pushed the Pentagon to release an unclassified report on, as the military calls them, unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, and whether any of them are a threat to national security. He gave them six months to produce the report, which means it will be due next month. Depending where you fall on UFOs, the whole thing might sound a little ridiculous, but one of the larger and more immediate concerns is that unidentified aerial phenomena, something flying in our airspace that we don't have record of could very well be from an adversarial nation. So it's kind of less little green men and more the possibility of very real humans or human-made weaponry. But many people are holding out hope for little green men, and President Obama helped stoke the fire Tuesday when he appeared on The Late Late Show with James Corden, and after saying that there are some things he just can't say on air, and accusing lead musician Reggie Watts of being a men-in-black-style alien, he said, quote... What is true, and I'm actually being serious here, is that there is footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they move, their trajectory. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And so I think that people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what that is." End quote. His comments come on top of a big 60 Minutes segment over the weekend with former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence Christopher Mellon, who gave declassified Navy videos of UAPs to the press and has been speaking out because he believes not enough is being done to investigate them. Now, I tend to be pretty cynical about this kind of stuff, but it does feel like something is going on here. Even if it's just some kind of internal drama or media frenzy, there's a story of some sort brewing, so I'm keeping my eye on it. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.